Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Ravi Suda on the line. Ravi, how are you? I'm fantastic, Michael. Great to have you. You do some interesting work in a variety of different things, uh, especially in monetary policy and, and crypto and all kinds of other stuff. So why don't you share with the audience a little bit about you and the work you do, and then we'll dive in. Sure. By uh, background, uh, uh, educational background anyways, I'm a mathematician and computer scientist. Uh, I have not spent any of my career specifically in those fields. I, I spent the first half uh, in the investment business and ultimately running an investment firm based in Canada. Uh, and then the, the last 12 or 13 years of my career, uh, I guess I can call myself an entrepreneur. And um, kind of uh, if there's anything I could say was the focus of, of my uh, career, it would be that uh, I've kind of focused on emerging markets or, or even frontier markets. And taking on opportunities that may have existed um, in uh, Western Europe or North America or more traditional markets, uh, but I, I just found uh, more interesting or, or maybe even a bigger opportunity because they are in those emerging markets. And so those are fields like renewable energy, um, gold mining, and that certainly ties into my views on monetary policy. I've uh, dabbled also in crypto mining, uh, as well as uh, primary agriculture. All those things are top of mind with a lot of government agencies, especially renewable energy. And of course, in the U.S., you know, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure, although we haven't really seen you know, the legislation come about yet, but it's still early in the new administration. So, you know, that takes time. Uh, but renewable energy, gold, obviously, you know, has been around for quite some time. And it's, it, it's one of those foundations where um, I always like it when I hear people say, oh, yeah, gold's down. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, then when you look at it, it's like, well, it's a lot higher than it was when my parents bought me a gold watch when I, for my high school graduation. So I, I, I know it's definitely worth more now than it was then. Uh, but, you know, all of these commodities and in different ways and the monetary policy uh, component of it as well is so critical because... Before, you know, we had currency, you had gold, you got, you know, mining and things like that, but there's more things involved now. And that's making monetary policy a lot more interesting and also challenging for governments across the globe. So I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on that. Absolutely. And, and um, we always try to, you know, as humans, I think it's human nature to try and contextualize things by looking about like when in history did it look like this? And what happened then? And maybe that can give me some clues as to what happened now. And of course, that's uh, a great thing to do and it makes sense to do that. But if you try to find, look back uh, 50 years or 100 years, my goodness, like how different does this world look and how much more interconnected are we? And uh, i just give a very specific example of that. Uh, the last time we saw the United States uh, carry a debt load that was similar uh, to what it is today in terms of a debt to GDP. And of course, the numbers keep getting bigger and it's hard for us to wrap our, you know, what does trillions of dollars mean anyways? Uh, but you have to put it in the context of what's the size of the economy. So it makes more sense to look at a percentage of GDP. And we're well over 100% debt to GDP at this point, uh, over 130%, in fact. And similar case is true, different numbers, different scale, 
uh, for Europe, for Japan, for every major economy in the world. But the last time we saw this uh, was exiting World War II, where the United States government had federal debt in excess of 100% of GDP. And the, the number of ways in which the world is different than 1946 <laughs> is a much longer list in the number of ways that it's the same. And just something as pedestrian as what, what was the foreign ownership in the U.S. market? I mean, that debt was owned by Americans who had funded the war effort, who had bought uh, treasuries and funded the U.S. government. And we had this huge demographic boom, the boomers. Uh, we had the so-called war dividend uh, or peace dividend, I should say, uh, coming out of World War II and all the benefits that accrued uh, going from uh, catastrophe to rebuild and, and, uh, and a long period of, uh, for the most part, peace. Uh, looking at it today, we're not coming out of, yeah, we're coming out of COVID. But I mean, it, you know, we haven't wiped out uh, half the world at which we have to rebuild the buildings and factories and roads and do everything better with the, a new generation of technology. We don't have a demographic boom, quite the opposite. In fact, uh, some countries do, but not the major Western economies, certainly the ones with the huge debt loads. And we have this interconnectedness that just didn't exist before. So now you have a U.S. government that's very dependent on foreign purchases of treasury bills or has been for the last many, many years to fund its, its deficits. And that just, that interest isn't there anymore. And that was, that you can't, that's apples to oranges looking back to post-World War II. That was not the case. It's a very different uh, setup in terms of who owned it, who funded those deficits. And so now if you're looking as not just an investor or somebody managing money professionally, but somebody saying, well, you know, what, what's going to happen to me over the next 10 and 20 years uh, we're, we're, I think we're all waking up to the fact that we can't just blindly assume that everything is uh, happening in our best interest uh, and we're all going to be treated equally. That's just not the case. Uh, and it is really uh, on, all, on all of us to start thinking about what does this mean for me in terms of what's happening with currencies, uh, with uh, the value of real assets and things like monetary policy. It's important. I think people need to, like you said, become a little bit more aware of how does this impact me as an individual? What do I need to do to make sure that my financial future um, is what I want it to be? And, you know, we could take that conversation in a thousand different directions because everyone is different. And I'll throw in the disclaimer. This is not an investment show. We are not stock advisors. We're not going to tell you to, uh, I will say this, buy low, sell high. There you go. (laughs) I'll stick with that one. And, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. You've heard that one too. But other than that, everything's on your own. But But I mean, it's like I, I prefaced it, I said, it's not just about investments here, right? It's, uh, you know, very few of us have actually lived through any sort of real amount of inflation. And we hear from our parents' generation uh, or grandparents in some cases, oh, interest rates used to be X and uh, my mortgage was such and such. Um, again, maybe that resembles the current time period a bit more than coming out of uh, World War II, but uh, an apples to oranges effect there as well. Uh, but none of us, um, you know, if you're in your 30s or 40s, you just don't have any experience with inflation. Things, prices have been very stable uh, for many years. The, the inflation statistics that were fed by the governments are almost everybody, I think, can agree, uh, misleading and understating actual inflation. But it, it, is, it has been tame. And now trying to rewire our brains to think, well, what does it mean for me when interest rates 
uh, move up? Uh, what does that mean for me? But what does it mean for me when uh, in real rates are hugely negative? Where I have, uh, and, and what does that mean? That means you have uh, an interest rate. Uh, you might be getting paid 3% on your 10-year uh, treasury. And then uh, the actual rate of inflation might be 15%. And so you actually have a negative real rate. And that means things are getting more expensive. And if you're sitting on $100, that $100 is going to purchase last year after year. I mean, this is the definition of inflation. That, you know, hasn't been a huge factor when it's legitimately been 0 to 2% for a very long time. But now we're seeing double-digit type inflation and, and perhaps uh, an omen of more ominous uh, type inflation levels to come. It affects everybody. And, it, you know, if you don't own a house now, it's going to become that much harder to own a house in five and ten years uh, or home of any sort. Uh, real assets, it just sort of makes us all turn into uh, renters or leasers. It becomes that much harder to form capital. And it really is, uh, it heavily advantages uh, a very small segment of the population, the 1% or even, even a smaller subset of that, and is hugely disadvantageous to over half the population. So wages never keep pace uh, with inflation and the, the increase in costs. And it's not just that, that wage inflation gap, it's that, it's that inflation in real assets. So you may, you may be enjoying your home and you may have a, a million dollar home and in 10 years that home may be worth $10 million. And you may feel very good about that, but it's still the same house. So is it actually worth any more? Sure, it's worth more in paper money, but it's still the same house and it's great that you own it. If you didn't own it and you were sitting on a million dollars and 10 years later at uh, 3% interest on your uh, fixed income portfolio, you have a million and $50,000, you know, not much more, um, you're going to feel pretty miserable because you didn't have that house. Uh, you, were, you were a victim of inflation and, uh, and, and you now have value of like equal to one-tenth of that house in terms of real assets. So it's something that affects each and every one of us. And it's like, it's time to start, everybody start thinking about it. Definitely. And especially as we see, you know, cause interest rates have been held at a very low rate for a very long time. Uh, inflation, as you said, has been, you know, non-existent quite frankly. I mean, other than, you know, a couple of percentage points, but we've seen it, you know, even, you know, coming, uh, you know, out of this pandemic, I like saying that to kind of frame it. I mean, many of us are still dealing with some of it, but we have turned a corner in, in most parts of the world. Some, maybe not so much, but ultimately we have seen, especially in, in the U S inflation is going up, things are costing more. And then, you know, they've been talking about you know, interest rates starting to creep up. So that's, that's a double whammy. You, things cost more interest rates are going up from a savings standpoint. Hey, that's great. From a borrowing standpoint, not so great. And I think about a lot of the people that or in mortgages, for example, and they didn't get a fixed rate, they got a flexible rate. So they've been living life pretty good. All of a sudden, those rates start going up. You know, things that they're spending and buying are costing more. All of a sudden, their mortgage payments are going up. Um, exactly. we, we could have what we've seen many times, a bit of a housing crisis where people are not able to afford the houses that they already own. Or are you know quote unquote own of course the banks own them but you know ultimately you know they they have the paperwork that say you know that they're you know 
that they can stay in the property. So, you know, that's obviously a big concern for a lot of people and it's causing a lot of financial stress and worry um, because we know everyone, you know, so when the interest rates are low, it's like, well, they're going to go up and come on, it's, it's going to happen at some point. Exactly. Inflation, inflation is going to go up. It's yeah. going to happen. And I think too many people have been, you know, head in the sand going, ah, that's not going to happen. It's going to be like this way forever. I'm like, no, no, not at all. And it, and the longer it goes on, the easier it is uh, to feel that way. That's again, that's typical human psychology. We're all, uh, we're all victims of our own uh, biochemistry and that's, that's where it leads us. You know, uh, it's happened before it keeps happening, probably going to keep, keep happening longer. And usually it's right until it's wrong. But I think you used the word, the term there, double whammy. I think that's exactly it. We will see rates increase at some point. And this, you know, to me, even as someone who uh, started their career in the investment business, I find a lot of these terms still, I'm a learner every day trying to understand how the system works, uh, quite arcane. What, what is this, you know, why do, why do rates go up and down? Uh, what does that mean? Why don't they just keep rates low forever? Why, 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 what's the point of raising interest rates when they make everybody's mortgage uh, more expensive if you increase the policy rate? And it's a function of... Um, how much do I need to borrow? So if I'm, again, use the U.S. government as an example, I need to borrow money and I've set my policy rate all functionally at zero, 25 basis points, 50 basis points, whatever it happens to be. Uh, I'm basically paying people nothing almost uh, to uh, give me money. And uh, that's actually worked. Uh, it's worked phenomenally well for a very long time for the U.S. government because it's the U.S. government, U.S. dollar has been the global reserve currency. Uh, but it's gotten now to the point where foreign uh, institutions, foreign governments, uh, foreign entities are less and less interested in funding those deficits. And it's more and more the Federal Reserve buying those treasury issuances to basically fund the U.S. government. So that's how the money supply has increased, that the Fed increasing its balance sheet and that flows through to the, to the money supply. And it works. And the theory is, uh, there, there's a, the term thrown around a lot lately, uh, MMT, modern monetary theory is, you can keep doing that as long as you're the reserved currency, no problem. Where the problem comes in is when it stops working. So people will only take you seriously, only have credibility to a certain point. Uh, the Fed balance sheet goes from a trillion to four trillion, sits at four trillion for several years uh, post financial crisis. And then in particular in the last 18 months for obvious reasons goes parabolic and it's continuing on that path. At some point, the credibility is just not there in the dollar and people start to uh, move away from it faster and faster. And the, the natural response to that is, well, surely the Federal Reserve is full of uh, people with PhDs uh, from Yale and MIT in economics, and they have access to more information than all of us put together. They know what they're doing. Uh, and, and a lot of people think, well, no, they don't. They must be out of their mind. This is totally the wrong policy. I'm in the camp that they actually do know what they do and what they're doing. And I've, I've had a, a unique uh, opportunity in my career to work with several central bankers. I, I had uh, Paul Volcker, who is former uh, uh, Fed uh, chair, of course, was on my advisory board for over 10 years. Uh, and John Crow is the governor of the Bank of Canada. I worked with him uh, in you know, the same office uh, for about 12 years. So I, I learned a lot from these people and uh, they're not magic oracles who know everything that can see into the future. They do have a lot of information, but uh, it, it doesn't make them immune to error or, or uh, poor judgment at times. 
but they are very intelligent people. And my view of what's happening in this case is they are running their playbook. They, they want to see in prolo- uh, higher inflation for a longer time. And they're saying as much their policies uh, match their words. In this case, they are creating more inflation with these policies. And the reason why they want to do that, which is something that they don't say, uh, but is very much matches what they're saying and matches what they're doing is deflation of uh, the federal debt or debt at all levels, not just the U.S. government debt. There's too much debt in the system. It is an intractable problem. There is no uh, plausible scenario where you have enough economic growth, whether it's through demographic growth or productivity improvement or just things, you know, getting better, booming post-COVID, whatever, where you can reverse those deficits and service that debt. It's not plausible. So the only, the best or most probable uh, exit path from this is that I don't believe the U.S. government's about to default on uh, treasuries. Uh, it's That would be the end of the world as we know it. Uh, it would be a financial calamity, uh, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, the playbook is to inflate out of it. So uh, what they're doing matches that. Uh, it's, it's what I would do, uh, in my humble opinion, if I was in the position. And I, I wouldn't talk about the fact that we can't realistically pay off our debt if we don't do this, but I, w- I would run my playbook uh, saying we're going to shoot for prolonged inflation, higher higher inflation, and for a longer period, and I would uh, affect policy to make that happen. And that's that million-dollar house uh, becoming a $10 million house trajectory. You're no richer or poorer. Uh, you still have the same house. It's still the same nice house that it was uh, today in 10 years, uh, but in paper money, it might be worth $10 million instead of one, and that 130% debt to GDP would, Caterus Paribus, be 13% debt to GDP, easily serviced. Uh, who gets absolutely plowed in that scenario? People who own uh, long-term uh, fixed income instruments, long-term uh, debt. Uh, they're, they're hit the worst, people who own cash also. Uh, who benefits the most? People who own real assets, gold, uh, real estate, potentially crypto. Uh, and uh, and also stocks, uh, the businesses that uh, are inherently inflation uh, protected in that they can pass on margins. Uh, if I'm willing to pay $100 for Nikes now, maybe I'm willing to pay $1,000 in a 10x uh, inflation environment, uh, and they can maintain the same percentage margin. Some businesses won't be able to do that, but some, some can, and, and equities offer some protection of that. I put it after uh, gold, real assets, and crypto for sure, but I, I need to keep it on the list. So Again, I come back to this is something that we all need to think about it because, you know, it's not something that just affects uh, uh, people uh, buying mutual funds and participating in the stock market. This is something that's going to hit every single person on our planet. Yeah, and it's it makes so much sense, too, because, again, you know, with the, the debt loads and, you know, they obviously want to address it. And I know that they have looked at a variety of different things. And uh, this is probably... I'll, I'll be simple about this. Probably the least painful option, you know. Like I said, the defaulting of the treasury uh, notes, like, oh yeah, that that would be, you know, that would make 1929 look like uh, the the Roaring Twenties. Um, it it would be devastating to the entire yeah. globe. Um, right, check your check your ammo supply in that scenario. I, you know, much, like, uh, I, love, I love to use the uh, the it's an old Star Trek reference. Um, uh, Kobayashi Maru, and it's a test, and it's meant to test. Uh, it was from from Starfleet Academy, where they would test how do you behave 
in a situation that's lose-lose? What options do you pick and what, what choices do you make? And I think uh, that's where the global economy is with its debt load. It's a Kobayashi Maru scenario. It's, it's a lose-lose. And so the decision is, what do we do? Or the question is, what do we do in this scenario? How do we, how do we lose best? And we lose best, at least the determination has been made by central bankers around the world. We lose best by inflating our way out of it. And like I said, it makes sense in, because, you know, taxation would be, be devastating as well because it would, you know, limit the buying power of things, which, you know, of course has a ripple effect on supply, demand, you know, purchases, businesses, all that stuff. So the, it's, yeah, you just, you know, things uh, are going to cost more. Yeah. Uh, austerity and, and taxation, uh, you know, if you have a, a problem that's in like uh, the percent or, or 5% and you're offside and you can tighten the belt a little bit. Uh, increase taxes on the wealthy and, and reduce some spending at the margin uh, without totally crumpling growth. Sure. But when you have a, a problem that's in orders of magnitude, uh, like 10x and 100x kind of problems, then austerity uh, at the margin does not do anything. You need massive growth. Um, and it is possible. It works uh, post-World War II. But we had growth on every vector. Everything was firing on all cylinders and it worked. Uh, this time is uh, we don't have any of those tailwinds. In fact, all those tailwinds have turned into headwinds, and so we need another we need another path out of this. And even and I've heard some people talk about the post pandemic, where they anticipate that there will be, you know, an economic boom in a lot of certain industries because people, you know, those that were able to still you know earn a living and you know, weren't unemployed during the pandemic. You haven't been spending the amount of money that they normally have. So there's going to be that. But I don't anticipate we're going to see anything to the extent of what the 1920s were like as far as just, you know, big, gigantic types of things. So again, even with, you know, you raise some taxes a little bit, you know, spending goes up. Okay, that's great. The debt load is like, okay, great. You know, we there's the mountain, you know, all these great things we did. Uh, we haven't even started climbing up the mountain yet. So it, it, I, I completely agree with the concept that there will be a continued boom coming out of this pandemic. And I, I learned a new term yesterday, which I quite liked revenge travel. Uh, and the, the meaning of that one is uh, just, you know, I've, I've been stuck here for 18 months like that bit, and I'm going to have a complete blowout trip that I probably would never have spent on before. And maybe it's not actually that much of a, uh, an over-the-top expenditure for me because I, I, I haven't spent anything on travel for a year and a half. Uh, and so you are going to, almost definitely, you're going to see some, some sort of boom there in, uh, in several sectors. Uh, we're going to eat out more. We're going to you know, meet up with friends more. We're going to travel more. We're going to spend more. The animal spirits are definitely there. I certainly can feel it amongst the people I talk to. Uh, but I, I don't think that's a, a fundamental change in people's behavior that's permanent. Uh, I think it's a one-time kick, and then we get back to normal, which is great. Uh, but it's not—it's not, it's not going to solve this um, this problem. And and it's funny, like we've already seen the increases in spending, and we've already seen some inflation. Where's our debt to GDP number going? It's still going the wrong way, and it's accelerating. It's not like it's decelerating and starting to—you know—we can see maybe we're going to turn the corner in a year or two. It's going the other way. It's still going the wrong way. So. I, I don't think anything has changed with that thesis, and I, I stick to my view that that's the playbook they're running, and everything they do and everything they say actually matches the 
playbook short of saying exactly why they're doing it. It makes total sense on that. So as an individual, um, you know, what are some things people can do? And we've kind of talked about a little bit that they can prepare for, you know, obviously the, the increased and prolonged inflation that uh, we're going to be facing. Uh, over the coming years, uh, what are some things that people can do? And I said, I know you've already talked about a little bit as far as investing in, you know, in assets and things like that. But uh, any anything in particular that you know somebody that's like going, oh no, what do I do? You know, what would be you know a key piece of advice or guidance that you'd like to share? For for the vast majority of people, this is the, this is the real problem with inflation. For the vast majority of people, there's almost nothing they can do. Uh, you know, hoarding cans of beans isn't going to really help you very much uh, in the scheme of things. Um, just because they might cost more in a year or five years or 10 years, uh, you're, you're not really protecting yourself uh, immensely that way. Uh, for those who do have investable assets, really take a hard look at your portfolio and say, you know, do I really want to have um, this component in fixed income? Where my, if everything goes according to Hoyle, I'm going to get one or two or 3% a year. And I'm already seeing effectively negative returns because inflation's way above that. Uh, for those who are holding cash, that's a significant amount of your um, your net worth. Take a very hard look at that and say, can I not put this to work somewhere else that's going to participate in this inflation? So at least I'm not losing purchasing power. That example of the $1 million house turning into a $10 million house and not being worth any more because it's the same, still the same house. At least you're protected. Uh, you're a lot happier than the guy who sat there with his million dollars in cash or in T-bills. Um, that if you can do anything like that, now is the time. Everybody should be taking a hard look at their portfolio. Of course, I'm in the gold business. That's why I started the company. I had this view uh, as a way for me to to make an investment in a company and be a, a, a very large shareholder of it. Uh, that was kind of sculpted around my macro view that uh, gold was going to increase dramatically in value and would be the ultimate protection uh, as an asset that's uh, totally inanimate, immutable, <laughs> an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. Uh, and uh, in my belief, uh, although my conviction has certainly uh, been challenged in, in the recent years, and I've myself become directly involved in the uh, cryptocurrency business uh, ecosystem in, in different ways, uh, I still believe it's uh, ultimately going to reappear as the primary anchor of our financial system. Uh, not exactly in the same way that it was um, 100 years ago, where we're, uh, the U.S. dollar was anchored uh, to gold and everyone else was anchored to uh, the U.S. dollar. Uh, uh, it may be at another level, but there, there is a reason why most of the world, the largest holders of gold in the world are still countries and central, central banks. Uh, it, they didn't think it was worth anything. Why would they hold literally trillions of dollars of it? Trillions of dollars of gold. Uh, I, I think I'd go around selling. I'd start selling it if I really thought that wasn't going to be worth anything. That'd be a good way to fund some of my deficits. Uh, why have uh, central banks been buying more and more of it since the financial crisis? They were net sellers for years. Uh, in aggregate, they were selling gold. But since the financial crisis in 08, uh, they've been net buyers. Uh, and a few conspicuous ones, China, of course, and, uh, well, well documented, but also uh, one I, I focus on a lot, Russia. Yeah, but what, what, what do they know? Uh, so let's, uh, let's see how that plays out for them. But I think that's the, that we'll, we'll see a reappearance of that as an anchor uh, to the financial system. And as that narrative develops, before it even happens, we'll see uh, gold 
continue to be valued differently in US dollar terms, in Euro terms, Redmond V terms, i.e. higher and being coveted more and people seeing more and more of that narrative start to play out will continue on this uh, upwards trajectory for gold price and for the entire precious metals complex. Uh, it's not for everybody, but for me uh, as a owner slash operator, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in being in the gold equity business. So that's another level of leverage on top of just the gold price. Uh, of course, you have operating leverage. Your stock gets a higher multiple as people get more interested in the sector and you basically have more torque and more leverage to that investing theme. So that that's my approach. doesn't fit for everybody. Uh, but if I had one piece of it, uh, not advice to share, but uh, thought, uh, it would be take a hard look at what your uh, portfolio looks like. What's going to come into your portfolio over the next several years? Are you downsizing your house? Do you have to upsize your house? Um, you know, make, make, make sure that you're comfortable with the money that you have in fixed income investments and certainly in cash and take a long, hard think about, is there a way I could do something better that, that the more matches the kind of environment that we're going to be in for the next several years, that if it's not going to make me lots of money, at least it's going to protect all the money that I have now. That is great uh, information. I'm not going to call it advice. We're going to call it information. So Robbie, I love this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and all this amazing work you're doing? My yeah, my company's called Galani Gold, uh, G-A-L-A-N-E, Gold, and, and you can uh, get me at uh, my email address, my corporate email address, uh, Ravi, R-A-V-I, at GalaniGold.com, or uh, from a social media standpoint, the best way to reach out to me is through LinkedIn. Perfect. And I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So Ravi, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you and uh, this very insightful conversation we've had today. Real pleasure, Michael. I, I really enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.